Welcome to the Pain Solutions Podcast. Dr. Wayne Fimister is a family physician with a special interest in chronic pain, whose passion is finding solutions for this epidemic problem facing one-third of the adult population. He is a clinical associate professor at the University of British Columbia in Canada and has developed one of the first online medical trigger point injection courses for doctors and nurse practitioners, a technique that is easily learned and implemented into the medical office of any doctor or nurse practitioner treating chronic pain. To get free access to Pain Solutions newsletter, blogs, and to register for his online course, simply register at www.waynefimister.com. On the podcast, Dr. Wayne brings together experts from various segments to share with you how they solve people's pain problems and how you can get this treatment too. And now, here's your host, Dr. Wayne Fimister. Well, welcome everybody to this special episode of the podcast show. My guest tonight is Dr. David Hanscom. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. I always enjoy being on your show. So David has, for 12 months, full-time committed himself to the pain project, uh, which he's been developing over the last 10 plus years after wonderful career in spine surgery for over 30 years up in Seattle. He's now in Oakland. And um, Davis, tell us a little bit about, give us an update right now on where you're at with the pain project. Well, what happened is that over the last 10 years, the neuroscience research has clearly revealed the answers to chronic pain. And they're simple, they're not hard to do. Basically, chronic pain is a neurological problem, and you literally have to reprogram your brain around the pain circuits, and it's a very solvable problem. So I watch hundreds of patients, as you all know, go to pain-free with very simple interventions, self-directed. And at the same time, I was watching three to five patients every week come to me with surgeries either being done or recommended on basically normal spines. And the downside of a field spine surgery is catastrophic. And about three years ago, I ran across a kid who was about 30 years old, nice kid, he had a surgery he did not need. He had a basically a very stable spine and ended up paralyzed. And I'm going, okay, I'm done. And so I don't know what I can do to help halt this whole process of spine surgery. So my mission's two roles. One of them is to do what I can do to stop this juggernaut of spine surgery. I mean, we're really a randomly throwing surgery at patients that don't need it. The downside of a spine surgery is catastrophic. We'll talk about that a little bit more. Then the other part of the project we've talked about quite a bit on the show already is the pain project where I just watched hundreds and hundreds of patients go to pain-free. They not only go free of chronic pain, but they actually start thriving at a level they've never have thrived at before. So I'm watching this incredibly rewarding process happen. At the same time, those same patients are undergoing an operation that they didn't need with really devastating results. The contrast got to the point I just simply could not watch it anymore. I quit last December to pursue this project full-time. I just finished another book called Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control with Advice from a Surgeon. And I'm excited about the book. It's intended for patients and providers alike to make surgeons more accountable to what they're doing. As you well know, surgeons make pretty arbitrary decisions. Nobody can really argue with them because they're the surgeon. And what the book does, it combines the status of the nervous system with the actual surgical anatomy and creates a quadrant or a grid that the problem is either amenable to surgery or it's not. Your nervous system is either calm or it's hypervigilant and fired up. And when you do surgery with a hypervigilant or fired up nervous system in the presence of a normal spine, the odds of it working aren't very high. In fact, they're less than zero in a way because you actually hurt people. 
If you do surgery to somebody who is not fired up, relatively calm, they have identifiable problem with matching symptoms, surgery works beautifully. So I just finished the book, Do You Really Need Spine Surgery? Take Control of the Surgeon's Advice. And I'm excited about it. And that's where I'm at with that part of the project. The other book, Back in Control, A Surgeon's Roadmap About a Chronic Pain, continues to sell really well. I'm giving lectures all over the country. I'm on TV, radio, podcasts, and do whatever I can do to actually flip this whole paradigm of chronic pain. So I'm busy. Wow, wow, wow. Wonderful. So let's dive in. I'm going to ask you some questions because our audience is thinking right now, okay, I've had a back surgery or I've been offered a back surgery for their pain. And they're thinking, what do you mean I don't need it? Like, So what are kind of the statistics around these people that are being offered surgeries that they don't need? Let's focus on one operation, which is a spine fusion for back pain. And... I looked at the research. There was one paper published in 2004 that showed that the success rate after two years for a spine fusion for back pain was 20%. The success rate for doing nothing was about 7%. That is the only paper that suggested that we should be doing spine surgery for back pain. So horrible outcome, horrible results. And what the obvious problem was that the non-operative care was basically, basically doing nothing. And we know that chronic pain gets worse with time. And we know if you take a systematic structured approach, chronic pain solvable, they didn't compare surgery to a structured organized approach. They basically compared spine surgery to doing nothing. And then again, the outcomes of this operation are about 20% success rate. There's not one research paper that's documented that spine surgery works for back pain. Not one in 50 years. But it's up over a $10 billion a year industry just doing fusions for back pain. And the problem is when you do the fusion, the data also shows that if you operate in the presence of untreated chronic pain, that you make the pain worse up to 40% of the time, and 10% of the time it can become permanent. So not only does it not work, there's a significant chance of making you worse, a lot of times much worse. And that's what I witnessed in my practice on a regular basis. People were having surgeries on spines that had nothing that you could see. And it seems obvious if you can't see it, you can't fix it. There's sort of a blind faith amongst patients and surgeons, well, everything else has been tried, let's try surgery. Well, that would be fine, except spine surgery is such a horrible downside to it. It was happened in the last five years, particularly instead of doing one and two level fusions for back pain, they're down now doing eight, 10, 14 level fusions for back pain with devastating complications, devastating results, and it's out of control, completely out of control. And these fusions that have been doing all over the country as regular Abs- treatments? Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, when I go to major centers and listen to the spine conferences and look on the board, I go to my regional or international spine meetings. When I look at the cases that are presented in the conferences and at the seminars and the workshops and also our annual meetings, I mean, probably maybe 10% of those need surgery. I'm actually in charge of the non-operative committee for the Scoliosis Research Society and I'm trying to finish up the project, but I had 40 people in eight different work groups looking at non-operative care versus surgery. There's first of all, nothing that says that scoliosis causes back pain, not one paper. There's not one paper that actually documents what non-operative care was done. There's no paper that defines the indications for surgery. And although the scoliosis research society fancies themselves as a very scientific society, there's no data. There's no data that says you should be doing a major scoliosis operation on somebody with back pain. None. And the participants in the study were actually shocked to see that. They honestly didn't realize how little data there was. 
So there's not only little data, there's actually no data. Wow. Yeah, I had one patient, oh, several years ago, and I remember she came in and she had severe scoliosis and she told me she had 50 years, 50 years of a Harrington rod in her back. And um, she didn't have pain. And for me, that was the first real case of, my goodness, a bad scoliosis is right. not the reason for chronic pain. No. It's very clear. Right. Know, very, very clear. There's right. other things going on, but not right. back pain. And as you all know, that chronic pain is basically defined as an embedded memory that becomes connected with more and more life experiences, and the memory can't be erased. It's a neurological problem. And one of the classic examples of that, of course, is phantom limb pain, where people have pain in their legs that requires an amputation. It's either vascular disease or diabetes. And as you well know, before the amputation occurs, there's lots of pain in that leg because of the lack of blood supply. What happens over 50% of the time, people not only feel the leg, but they also feel the same pain that was there before surgery. It drives patients crazy because they can't touch the leg because the leg isn't there. What you're essentially doing with procedures in the body is that phantom limb pain can occur any part of the body, burning lip syndrome, ringing in the ears, back pain, neck pain. And so when you have a memorized neurological circuit, you can't do more surgery on a phantom limb because the limb isn't there. So once the pain is memorized, it doesn't matter what you do, more surgery is not going to work. Conversely, even if you have a surgical problem where you know where the pain is coming from, you can still reroute the brain around those pain circuits and actually solve the pain problem even without surgery. If you happen to decide to do the surgery, then the results are spectacular and consistent if you calm down the nervous system first. But I had over 100 patients with surgical problems on the schedule ready to go the data says, you know, take care of these issues before surgery, which is sleep, stress, conditioning, medications, et cetera. So what I did for eight to 12 weeks for every elective surgery, I called it prehab, where people, we put people through basically the doc process, which is this defined direct your own care process that I put together in my book. And so on the website, which is backincontrol.com, there's a pathway that people would go on to. But I had over 100 patients with surgical problems on their schedule, ready to go, they would come in for the final preoperative visit to schedule the surgery and the pain was gone. And these were very, very tight bone spurs. It turns out it doesn't matter where the pain starts, you can still reroute the brain around it. So you're diverting a river into a different channel. Wow, that's, that's really, really interesting. I'm not surprised because I'm seeing results like this in my own practice. But right. you know, and that's a very good point you're making for it. And I'd like the audience to think about this. You've been diagnosed with a herniated disc. Right. Your spine surgeon says, look, you need surgery. Right. And you would think, okay, this is maybe one case where surgery would be good. Right. And maybe it will. Right. But as you're saying, we've got to calm down the nervous system before you go to the chopping block, before right. the surgeon gets his knife out. Because at the end of the day, the brain controls those nervous pathways from the limbic system all the way down into the local area. And when we reroute these signals, then the outcomes can be amazing, as you said, or right. even you don't need them. Like you said, 100 patients for surgery did not need it. Before. Yeah, actually 125. And, and what happened, these are people that I, I ruled out soft disruptors because those get better without surgery a lot of the time. So all these had bone lesions. Normally the lumbar spine is about 15 millimeters in diameter. And at about eight or nine millimeters, the canal gets tight enough that it causes sciatica 
So we tend to do surgery at about eight or nine millimeters. The patients that were canceling surgeries had spinal canals of four, five, and six millimeters. I mean, very tight stenosis, leg pain, classic surgical problems. I also found out that even with spinal stenosis surgery, the success rate is only about 65%. It's not 100%. So that caught my attention. Then I honestly, my first book, I said, look, if you have a structural surgical problem, just do the surgery quickly because people in chronic pain don't tolerate more pain, right? So just get it done. So I was actually quite aggressive for several years in doing surgery quickly in chronic pain patients, but a significant number of them still had the pain. Then I ran across about five research papers that blew my mind that showed that, again, chronic pain is a memorized set of neurological circuits, that if you operate in the presence of untreated chronic pain, that the pain will get worse at least 40 to 60% of the time, and 10% of the time it'll become permanent. Or you can induce pain at the new surgical site. For instance, if you have chronic neck pain and have a hernia repair form, which is usually a straightforward operation, really hard to get complications with it, that you can induce chronic pain at the hernia site up to 40% of the time. This is a very simple operation, no complications. And so what happens, I've said this for a long time, and now the data is really supporting this, is that you have these chronic pain circuits fired up. You really just start plugging in body parts. Because remember, there's only a certain region of the brain that says something's painful. And what the world has to understand that without a nervous system, you would not have pain. If you did not have a brain, you would not have pain. Because it's only by interpreting the environment that your brain says danger. And I, for instance, I'm touching this table, which is a little bit cold. The only reason that this table isn't painful because my brain says it's not painful. So pain is an interpretation of sensory input. And if this table was you know, 10 degrees warmer, it would catch my attention. If it was above 80 degrees, I would start getting pretty uncomfortable because my brain says danger. So until your nervous system takes all the sensory input and interprets it as dangerous, there's no pain. So the interpretation of pain is only in your brain. It's interpreting sensory input. The other thing, there's a book out called How Emotions Are Made, which shows the power of the nervous system is that thoughts and concepts become embedded in your brain the same way a chair or a table does. In other words, the only reason this table is a table is my brain's analyzed in the flat surface. It's black, it's a little bit cold. So my brain says this is a table. There's nothing in my eyes or hands that inherently says this is a table, right? So your brain has to interpret everything around you to decide what's real and not real. It turns out that thoughts, concepts, and ideals get embedded in your brain the same way. And so does pain. So for instance, if you think, well, the San Francisco Giants are the ultimate team in the world, become this avid, rabid fan, that actually becomes your reality. That becomes just a real process in your brain. And you actually start running your life based around that paradigm that you have to see the Giants game, you have to be there, you have to do this, this, and this. But it's true for any thought or concept becomes embedded in your brain the same way a chair or a table does. So pain does the same thing. And once you have something in your brain that's painful and it's memorized, again, you just can't get rid of it. You have to reprogram around it. Surgery doesn't do that. Very well said. I just like to guide people, as you've mentioned, you know, you said you're back at your website, backincontrol.com. This is an excellent resource. I've used it for years now with David's help to help my patients, encourage my patients to read it, use it. And, you know, I go over the fundamentals of phase one of the, the direct your own care program with every patient. 
right. because they need to get these principles into their head so they right. can literally change. And as you perfectly point out here, it is possible, possible for the pain to go away completely. Maybe not everybody, but it is possible. And we've got to start with that pretense to move forward. Well, what I find about that actually it's not possible, it's actually probable. It appears that the only yes. obstacle to people getting better is simply their willingness to engage. And what the neuroscience shows, we had Dr. Ep Carrion from Chicago come to Seattle a few weeks ago, and he pointed out that from the neuroscience research that your body actually becomes addicted to the pain. You actually get addicted to nociceptive input. So people don't want to give it up. So the only obstacle, and also a huge obstacle to actually people healing is simply people's willingness to engage. But it turns out that part of the disease is actually the block to the treatment. In other words, you get these obsessive thought patterns. They're not rational. And you can't penetrate them with reason. They're irrational. And I honestly don't have an answer for that. So what I have found out, that I just keep people time and space. And I want to jump back clear to the beginning of the entire project about, in my mind, what the essence of the DOC project is. Again, it stands for direct your own care. So the three parts of healing pain is, first of all, understanding the problem, which makes sense in any realm. The second part is treating every aspect of the problem simultaneously. It's like fighting a forest fire. The third part is, since each patient's unique, the person has to take complete control. So it's awareness, treating every aspect simultaneously, and the patient takes control. That's how you solve chronic pain. But the essence of it is that what you want to do is to heal, is connect to your own capacity to heal which allows you to feel safe. And when you feel safe, your body chemistry is optimized. So your body is full of oxytocin, dopamine, and serotonin, which are very great positive chemicals in your body. You have a tremendous sense of well-being, and you feel safe, and you are safe. When you're full of adrenaline, cortisol, cytokines, and then other different toxic chemicals, why you don't feel safe, you feel anxious. So the essence of the solution is actually feeling safe, which changes your body's chemistry. And I think that the book, The Doc Project, allows you to give a framework, but I still think the essence of healing is the doctor-patient relationship because you want to feel safe with your doctor, right? If you can't feel safe with your doctor, who are you going to feel safe with? Unfortunately, going back to the surgical book, in the surgical world, patients don't feel safe, and guess what? They actually aren't safe because what happens, you're desperate to get out of chronic pain. The medical profession has labeled you as a, quote, chronic pain patient, malingerer, drug seeker, whatever labels they get put on them. None of that feels very good. It has been demonstrated in several research papers that the effect of chronic pain on a person's quality of life is equivalent to having terminal cancer. It's a bad thing. When a surgeon walks in the room and says, look, I can help you out with surgery. We have a 90% success rate. Why would you say no? The problem is the data is not there. And I'm not saying the surgeon is lying. I mean, I thought that the success rate was 90% myself. Do you know what the actual success rate of a spine fusion is for back pain? Just take a guess. 30%. Just 25%. What success rate would you want to have to undergo a major spine fusion, personally? What would be your threshold? I would take 80%. 80%, okay. Well, 30%, 25% is not 80%, right? I don't want to turn the surgeons into villains because we honestly think we're doing the right thing. I spent eight years being one of those surgeons who actually did the operation for pain. When I found out in 1993 that the success rate was about 15 to 20%, I just stopped because I thought it was 90%. I mean, that's what I was taught. That's what I believed. I think most surgeons that do the operation believe it. The problem is in this day and age, as you know, 
we do the operation, we move on to the next patient, we don't see our patients long-term, we actually don't know the outcomes of our own patients. And so we think there's a much higher rate than it really is, but the success rate overall is about 25 to 30%. It's about it. I don't think most people who actually knew that would actually undergo the operation. So what I did in my book, let me just go back to the book for a second. So I developed four quadrants. So the quadrants on the left side is basically, is it structural? In other words, is it amenable to surgery? Can I see it on a test? Or is it soft tissue? In other words, I can't see it. And so if it's structural, surgery is a possibility. If it's not structural, surgery is off the table. If I did one thing with this book, I'd be happy with is that I hate to see people with normal spines having surgery. If you can't see it, you can't fix it. So that's my first goal of the book is say, look, can you see it or not? And see, people think, well, if surgery isn't on the table, what else am I going to do? Well, there actually is plenty of other things to do. But even if there wasn't something to do, you still can't do something that doesn't work and has a risk to it, right? So that's my first goal of the book is simply take it off the table. The surgery is a choice just because everything else has failed. Then the other column is the surgeon, are you calm or are you stressed? So if you think about this, there's a grid that comes up. And so type one is structural, type two is non-structural. A is calm, B is stressed. So when a patient has a structural problem and is calm, and I'm gonna take you as an example, let's say you had a ruptured disc with leg pain matching symptoms. If I did a simple disectomy on you, you'd do fine. I'm not against surgery. In fact, if you're miserable enough, I've had two back surgeries myself and they've done well. If you had a ruptured disc and had screaming leg pain and couldn't tolerate it, surgery is wonderful. I love doing surgery in that situation. Now let's say you had the same ruptured disc and you're going through some personal stresses that were pretty extreme, financial relationship or otherwise. Why the structural problem is still there. We call this a 1B. 1A is basically structural calm. 1B is structural stressed. Let's say you're in a 1B situation where you're going through a lot of stress. You have the same disc rupture. First of all, you actually don't know how bad the pain really is because your nervous system is fired up, which increases the nerve conduction, which increases the pain. So you don't actually know how much pain is really there when you're stressed because it gets magnified so dramatically. So the goal in this situation is to actually spend six to 12 weeks with medications, whatever it is to get your sanity, to get some sleep, to calm things down, do what's called prehab. And as things calm down and improves the body's chemistry and off the pain disappears. But if you need the surgery, by calming down the stress nervous system, again, the, the results become very maximized. So then we go to the second group, this, the non-structural group. Let's say you have back pain. There's nothing you can see. Again, the data shows that there's not one operation that shows that back pain is amenable to surgery. So let's say you have degenerative disc disease, which is not a structural problem. In fact, it's been very clearly proven that disc degeneration is not a source of pain. So instead of being called degenerative disc disease, it should be called normally aging disc. So it's been very clearly shown that degenerative disc disease does not cause pain. So let's say you have back pain. I'll ask you a question again. So you're now in the 2A group. You've had back pain for six months. You're still dealing with life, usual stresses, doing okay. How hard would you be pushing for a surgery for back pain? Not very hard. So most 2A patients actually aren't really pushing for surgery because they don't like the pain, but they're still coping okay. But let's say you have back pain. Again, you're going through a lot of personal stresses. 
So you're now in the 2B category, which means you have a non-structural problem, nothing to operate on, and you're stressed. What happens, you take your other life stresses, you know how the stress of back pain, and you get desperate. That's the 2B group. That's where most of the surgery is being done on normal spines and people that are desperate for a solution. That's the group that does incredibly well with a structured, organized rehab program. They should never have surgery. That's where most of the surgery is being done because they're so vulnerable. I mean, they're desperate. They've been bounced around. They've been given no answers. A surgeon walks in the room and says, hey, look, we can take care of you. How can you say no? That's the other goal of mine is to quit doing surgery on people that are stressed out, whether they have a structural problem or not, calm down. There's a paper out of Baltimore published in 2014 that shows that only 10% of surgeons actually address those issues before they recommend or do surgery, only 10%. So that's my mission is I'm doing whatever I can to say stop. And the final part of this picture is I wrote a website post called the Surgical Scrap Heap. So let's say I do your operation, let's say you're a 2B category, not only is the pain not better, it's worse. Your life continues to fall apart. You become more and more desperate. Nobody will take care of you. You know that, right? You've had surgery. The surgeon who did your surgery says, well, I did my best. Have a good life. Other surgeons will not take on other surgeons' failed backs. Primary care gets overwhelmed very quickly with somebody who's had surgery and is not doing well. So basically, not only have you had the surgery that hasn't worked, you can't find anybody to really take care of you right? And so you're abandoned. So that's the final insult to the whole picture. The surgeon collects his fees, goes on with his or her life. And here you are with not only a bad back, but pain that's way worse and nobody will take care of you. It's not great. Anyway, so what the book does, do you really need spine surgery? It allows you to put yourself in either structural or non-structural, calm or hypervigilant. It allows you to put yourself in the appropriate quadrant each quadrant has a completely different treatment protocol, which is not hard to follow. And so it allows you to make a very clear decision about doing surgery. So I'm not saying never do surgery by any means. If you have a structural problem that needs to be addressed, do it. You can optimize your result by calming down your nervous system. If you don't have a structural problem, never do surgery, ever. Don't even think about it. And that's what the book does. It starts laying out in an organized manner on this treatment grid that allows you to figure things out. Well, listen, David, thank you for being very explicit and taking us through the basics of your book in simple language so patients can get this idea, if not from the podcast, but get the book. It's called Do You Really Need Spinal Surgery by Dr. David Hanscom. Is that available on the regular, you know, online, Amazon, Kindle, etc.? This is on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, it's in bookstores. And so I'm excited about the book. It's a very quick read. It's very efficient. allows you to understand things pretty quickly. It allows you to look up your own diagnosis and get really clear as far as what your specific diagnosis is, structural or non-structural. So I'm pretty excited the way it turned out. And I think it's going to long-term help a lot of people out. Well, listen, I congratulate you on the book and your endeavors with moving forward with the pain project. It's wonderful what you're doing. And I know you've had a lot of personal experience with this and, and that's the driving force behind your big mission. So it's, it's been great to get to know you this year a little bit in person and yeah. um, have you on the podcast show and share the great stuff that we're doing here. So. Once again, thank you, Dr. David Hanscom. Wayne, thank you. I also appreciate your interest and support. It helps me a lot to keep myself going. So yeah, your work is great. And I uh, anything I can do to help you out, I'm happy to do so. Okay, thank you, David. We'll get you on once again for another show in the future. Bye Thanks. for now.